this is Simon Gallagher from eSmart Networks. Welcome to The Grid Podcast, your weekly update on all things grid and how its transition is helping us towards net zero. Now, it turns out that my first podcast was downloaded over 300 times, so either my mum has listened to it every day for the last seven days, or a few other people did as well. But either way, I'm really happy with how many downloads it's had, and actually I've had a lot of messages. So it sounds like some people have found it useful, so here, as promised, is the follow-up. As usual, we will talk about an exciting topic on the grid in a bit of detail, and then we'll go through some of the energy, EV and grid-related news from last week to keep everyone buying up to date on what is a very fast-moving industry. Now, my colleagues at eSmart Networks have been telling me that the podcast needs a bit of banter, so hopefully this will be the last week I'm on by myself, because to introduce banter... We need more than one person. So next week, hopefully, we will have a guest on talking about something even more exciting than what we're talking about today, and banter is very much guaranteed. So this week, the topic that's going to get everyone's heart racing is fault levels. I bet you can't wait to get into the detail on fault levels. One thing to mention is this podcast is very much designed for non-engineers. So if you are an electrical engineer, switch off now because we are going to approximate and we're going to hopefully explain things in a simplified way that non-engineers will understand, which might have some actual engineers cringing with some of the some of the analogies I use. But it is accurate and it's designed for non-engineers, so please stick with it. Fault levels is one of those widely misunderstood issues that I spend a lot of time explaining to customers and solar developers. So hopefully this demystifies the whole issue a bit. Now bear in mind that many projects, especially generation projects, are killed off very early because of fault level issues on the DNO network. So it is a very important topic, especially for people who want to connect generation to the wider network. And as you will see, that is even if you do not want to export onto the network. So before we understand what fault level is, we do have to go through a bit of very, very simple circuit theory with some very simplified maths. So Bear with it, it is simple. So imagine a very simple circuit. So on the left-hand side, we've got a battery, which is 100 volts. On the right-hand side of the circuit, we've got a load of some description. It could be a house, it could be a bulb, whatever it is. And it's got a resistance of one ohm and there's cables in between. So our circuit is a big circle. On the left is a 100 volt battery and on the right is a one ohm load. Now the only equation and the only bit of mathematics you need to know here is Ohm's law, the foundation of all electrical engineering. And what Ohm's law tells us is that current is always equal to the voltage over resistance, voltage divided by resistance. So in this case, we want to know how much current is flowing through our load. So it is 100 volts over one ohm. So 100 over one, is 100 amps, quite a lot of amps, so we've got 100 amps flowing through our load. Now what happens if we short that load out? So what happens if we take a piece of wire and put it between the terminals of the bulb? So in effect, we're giving the electricity a very low resistance path to take. So in that case, Ohm's law now changes. So in our adapted circuit, the resistance through the load is now zero because we've got a piece of wire across the load. Now the wire will have some resistance, but for our purposes, we'll say it's zero. So if we take our adapted equation, that is now 100 volts over zero ohms. And the mathematicians will tell you that 100 divided by zero is infinity. Now clearly, we can't actually have infinity current in the real world. So what actually limits the, the current 
in reality is what's called the source impedance of the battery. So the battery itself has got a resistance to it and it's this resistance which will limit the current. So generally, for example, if this was a AA battery, I know you can't get a 100 volt AA battery, but just bear with me, I'm trying to keep the numbers round and simple. For a AA battery, the internal impedance or the internal resistance is generally around 0.5 ohms. So if we now adapt our, our equation in this case, it's 100 volts divided by 0.5 ohms, which is 200 amps. So we could say that under fault conditions, because a fault is a short circuit, so under our fault conditions in this case, we would have 200 amps flown in our circuit, which is twice the load current. Now, if our wires are only rated for 100 amps, and they're now seeing 200 amps, they're going to melt. So this is the exact same in power systems. We have to protect against fault levels because in faults, lots and lots of current flows, which is desirable for some reasons, but it will destroy the equipment if the equipment can't take that rating. So we need a way to discover there's a fault happening and cut it off as quickly as possible. Now, obviously, AC circuits in the real world are more complex because we have capacitance, we have inductance, and we have impedance instead of resistance or as well as resistance. But really, for our purposes today, we can use DC theory, which is what I'm talking about here, to give us some rough approximations and explain what fault level is, how we calculate it, and what we can do about it. So the next thing we need to understand in relation to fault level, now we know our circuit theory, and now we know that under a fault we get lots of current, we need to know what the three different main types of switchgear are. So as a reminder, switchgear is used to control electricity and especially to isolate the minimum part of the network when that network becomes damaged. So if you have a fault in your iron, which is quite common because there's water in them, you don't want to trip Radcliffe Power Station because you've got a fault in your iron. So in that case, the fuse in your plug will blow. And that's an example of a type of switchgear, which is a fuse that blows only for that small section of the network, which is the lead in the iron. So switchgear is very important to selectively protect the wider network. And there's three main types of switchgear. So the first common type of switchgear we come across on, on electrical networks are what we call switches. Now switches, I know we've got switches in our everyday life and we don't really think of them very much, but in electrical engineering terms and especially power systems, switches can break load current. So in our example circuit, our load current is 100 amps. So those switches are rated to safely open on 100 amps of load in our case so they can open on load. What they cannot do is open on a fault. In our example, under a fault, we would have 200 amps flowing. A switch cannot break fault levels. It can, In our case, it could not break 200 amps. The switch could actually blow up. What they can do, however, is they can make fault current. Now, why would we ever want to close a switch on a fault? Well, sometimes we don't know there's a fault. So say, for example, it was switched out of circuit to do some work. A digger could have hit the cable in the meantime. We do test them before we put them back into service, but a fault can develop. So when we close our switch, we want to make sure that if there is a fault on the system, we can safely close it because don't forget there's a person standing in front of that switch. So that's why generally switches are what we call load break and fault make. And the most common example of this on the high voltage networks are the ring switches on an RMU. So generally an RMU will have two ring switches and a circuit breaker to control the load. The two ring switches can break load current 
and they can make fault current. Another example when we might close a switch onto a fault is actually on purpose. So sometimes, especially on rural overhead networks, when a fault happens, the, the circuit trips out and sometimes we can't find where the fault is. It might not be a visible fault. We just can't find it for whatever reason and we still have to get people back on supply. So after we've done a line patrol or we've done what we need to do to try and find the fault, sometimes we'll just literally split the circuit halfway. So we'll open a switch halfway along the, the feeder somewhere and then we'll try it back in. And if the circuit holds back in, it means the fault is in beyond where we've opened up. But consequently, the circuit can trip when we track it back in. So sometimes on a fault, we'll stand in front of a switch. The control engineer will tell us under our switching instruction, you may be closing on a fault and you would, you know, you would want to make sure the switch gear you're standing in front of is good quality switch gear. Generally, it's gas switch gear you'd want and you'd want to make sure that it's in good condition. So sometimes we would actually purposefully close under a fault. So just as a reminder, switches are load, break, fault, make. The second kind of switch gear we have in big volumes then are things called disconnectors. So disconnectors, well, they're a bit strange, I suppose, because they can't break or make fault or load current. So these are only operated when the circuit's already open, when there's not load or faults, obviously, flowing in the circuit. And what these are for is they're not really to control the circuit. They're there because some items of switchgear don't give you a safe point of isolation. So a vacuum circuit breaker has got a very small gap when it's open between the two sides of the contacts. And actually, it's not safe to put people to work on the network with, with such a small gap because the, the vacuum could fail and then the, the electricity could jump that gap. On those circumstances, and this happens a lot at EHV, we've got physical disconnectors, which all they do, you open them up and you can see them open generally on you know an EHV compound, physically a big piece of bar that pivots. And it means that that is then a safe and approved point of isolation. So disconnectors cannot break load current or fault current. The only thing they can break is charging current in the cable. The third type of switchgear then, the, the really the daddy-o of switchgear, the most expensive and most complicated are circuit breakers. And circuit breakers can do everything. So a circuit breaker can break load and they do that all the time. Circuit breakers can make load. Circuit breakers can break faults and that's their main duty to break fault current and they can also make fault current and just as an illustration of how stressful this can be we used to have a lot of oil switch gear on the network still is a lot of oil switch gear but there used to be a lot of oil filled switch gear in primary substations for example in london where my background is the circuit breaker could only interrupt three faults after the third fault the circuit breaker had to be taken offline stripped down inspected and and cleaned up and put back into service and what happened was the fault level so high there's so much energy being released when the fault is interrupted that the copper contacts within the oil tank actually deform and melt so what happens is we take the circuit breaker out we take it apart we check the oil and then the fitters dress the contacts or replace the contacts and that's just an indication of how much energy has been released when these things operate. So now we know what switches are, we know what disconnectors are, and we know what circuit breakers are. So now we can explore what impact fault levels have 
on our distribution networks. So AC circuits are like DC circuits. Electricity always wants to flow from the source. So in our DC example, the positive terminal on our 100 volt AA Frankenstein battery through the wire, through the load, and then back again in a big circle. In our battery example, that would be from the positive terminal, through the wire, through the load, and then back into the negative terminal on a battery and just keep going in a circle like that. It's the same thing in our AC power systems, only the current's going back and forward, but we can ignore that for now. So in our power system, the current flows out from the transformer bushing, down the cables, through the load, back through the cable into the star point of the transformer again in a big circle. Now in that scenario, imagine someone drives a steel spike through one of our high voltage cables in the street. A very, very common thing. Cables are getting damaged all the time. So that steel spike will penetrate the wire armor or the tape armor on the cable, which is earthed, and it will drive that into the three live phases. And basically, the cable phases which are live are all earthed and they're all bonded to each other. So that's what we call a HV symmetrical fault. It's the worst kind of fault we can have. What this means then is that we have a very low impedance. Impedance is AC resistance. Think of it like that. So we've got a very, very low impedance path for the electricity to take. Now, if we remember from our Ohm's law example, because we've got practically zero resistance, our current will be very high and in our power systems thousands and thousands and thousands of amps will very quickly flow. We call that fault current rushing into the fault. For example, we might have 10,000 amps flowing in a circuit that normally only pulls 300 amps and our cables might only be rated to 400 amps. So that will destroy the cables, will destroy the switchgear if that fault current is not detected and shut off very very fast so in the feeding substations generally primary substations feeding 11 kv networks or grid substations feeding our 33 kv networks we've got relays within the switch gear that detect this massive flow in current so the relays can tell a difference in load current which could be 300 amps say and fault current which is many times that so the relay picks up we call it picking up and it issues a trip signal to a circuit breaker which says here there's a fault trip we want to get rid of the fault and hopefully the circuit breaker is well maintained there's a very fast acting mechanism a mechanical mechanism that will then trip open the circuit breaker and switch off that fault when the circuit breaker opens to switch off the fault an arc is formed an electrical arc is formed between the two sides of the contact within the switch because the electricity does not want to stop flowing and the more current that was flowing the harder it's going to be to get it to stop so we need to extinguish or quench this arc somehow in the old oil filled circuit breakers we actually use the oil within the tank to stretch out the arc and extinguish it and ga hydrogen gas is formed within the oil these days it's mostly vacuum circuit breakers where the circuit breakers are within a vacuum bottle and electricity finds it much harder to jump a gap in, under a vacuum but we've also got air blast switch gear where literally a blast of high pressure air is shot into the arc to extinguish it and we also have rotating arc method where the electrical arc is rotated using magnetic principles and that has the effect of stretching the arc out 
which eventually extinguishes it. These circuit breakers can only interrupt these arcs or extinguish these arcs up to a certain level of current because over those levels of current is too much energy for the mechanism or for the arc extinguish method to handle. So we plan and design the networks up to a certain fault level and some example fault levels. So I've taken this from Spen's design guide. So at 11 kV, they design their network with a rating up to 250 MVA, which is 13.1 kA or 13.1 thousand amps. At 33 kV, they design their networks never to exceed 1000 MVA. That's also 13.1 kA or 13.1 thousand amps at 33 kV. And 132 kV, Spen's design criteria is 4570 MVA, which is 20,000 amps or 20 kA at 132 kV. And what this means in practice is that the switch gear they install and the cables they install and even the fittings for the cables all must be rated to that level so they can safely extinguish any arc of any fault because the network is designed never to exceed that fault level under any circumstance. Fault levels have a very real impact on how we plan and operate the network. So, for example, from my past, the old London Electricity Board, the LEB standard, in London for primary substations back in the 60s was four 15 MVA transformers feeding a double buzz bar 11 kV switchboard. The four MVA transformers could not all be run in parallel because the combined source impedance was low enough that the fault level exceeded the safe braking capacity of the circuit breakers and the board. So they were run what we call two by two. So Either the buzz sections for half the board were unclosed or the buzz couplers, but generally only two transformers were run in parallel. What happened though when one transformer tripped? To maintain supplies, there was an auto switching scheme where the remaining three transformers were all parallel together instantly. So the station went solid and that maintained supplies and also kept the fault level under the fault capacity of the switchboard. So how does this impact us then when we're trying to connect to the grid? Well, every time we add generation to the grid, it increases the fault level. It, in effect, it reduces the source impedance, but you can also think of it of increasing the energy available for a fault. This does not matter if the generation is all consumed on site. If there is a fault out on the DNO's network, so if someone drives a steel spike through our cable, that generation on that site doesn't care that it's on, it's on a specific site. Electrically, that will still contribute energy, fault current, into the fault. So even if you want to consume all your own generation on site, you still have to tell the DNO because it will contribute towards a fault level that their switch gear has to safely deal with. Some rules of thumb then around fault levels. So most synchronous generation, so these are rotating machines. So these are rotating machines in sync with the grid. So for example, rotating turbines in a power station, they will generally produce six or seven times its rated output and fault contribution. Inverter connected generations, so this is most PV and some wind turbines, they will contribute around 1.2 to 2.5 times its rated output in fault level. So turning these into real numbers, 
a 50 MVA solar farm connected to 132 kV will contribute up to 125 MVA a fault level but a 50 megawatt gas turbine connected to 132 kV will contribute 350 MVA fault level so a huge difference between synchronous and non-synchronous machines how does this impact us then well a lot of times you simply cannot connect generation to the network because the network is already at its fault level there's only really two types of mitigation can happen we can replace the switch gear this has traditionally been the way we deal with it it is expensive it is time consuming or we can use more advanced things coming on the market called fault current limiters but you know they're pretty experimental at the minute and there's lots of good work going on by the dnos in this but we don't really have an, an at scale solution if new switchgear is required to up the fault level capability of that switchgear the way that's paid for is the same way as cost or apportioned for thermal upgrades so if you listen to the podcast all around reinforcement it's, it's the same equation this is a major constraint to a lot of connections so a lot of people ask me quite often what's the legal background what are the regulations that say that they can be blocked from connecting so regulation 22 of the electricity quality and continuity regulations 2002 state that no person can operate in parallel with the dno network without permission from the dno and that's got actually an unlimited fine since 2015 so the esqcr regulations mandate you must tell them and you must get their permission the dno has got other obligations from the same regulations as well as the electricity work regulations to operate a safe network so they will not allow you to connect if your fault level contribution pushes their network over its limit and don't forget the consequence of them being over the limit is that under certain conditions switch gear could catastrophically fail and a lot of it is filled with oil and that just can't be allowed to happen so that's why fault level issues can have a big impact on generation connections so that's the beginner's guide to fault levels done if you want to see what this actually looks like in real life google electrical arc disconnector that's electrical arc disconnector the first video that comes up on youtube is a whole load of disconnectors being opened on load and as you will remember they're not designed to be opened on load and what happens is an arc is formed the disconnector is unable to extinguish it so it persists and usually what happens is the arc jumps from one phase to the other and then the protection operates because it's essentially become a face-to-face -face fault so have a look at that you'll see the bright blue noisy arc and that arc interestingly is three times hotter than the surface of the sun so safety is absolutely paramount when it comes to interrupting fault and load currents so on to the news then so the storms over the weekend are dominating headlines this morning so storm eunice left four people sadly dead around the uk and ireland and 1.4 million homes without power as of monday morning there's 55,800 of those to be reconnected now i did do a special podcast last week all about how dnos prepare for storms it was very sad that four people have died but the dnos are doing a tough job to try and get everyone else back on supply so quickly some av related news then so we start off with nissan who has announced that they're going to spend 500 million to repurpose an assembly plant in the us to build two new electric vehicles so 
there's not a week goes by where a major manufacturer is not announcing multi-million pound or multi-million dollar capital spends for the electric vehicle transition. It's always good to see. Other news, the SMMT is calling for a watchdog to oversee electric charging prices and the rollout of charging points. Now, this this is a tough one. So Podpoint have come out in opposition, particularly their their CEO. And I can understand why there is opposition because the charging networks that are being built right now are mostly being built with private money. So will we damage investment just when we need it the most by putting in regulation? At the same time, we all know that the networks could be in a better state than they are, but there's legacy issues there and there's some companies doing fantastic work to upgrade these networks. So that will probably rumble on and on. Instavolt announced last week that they plan to open its thousandth rapid charger in the UK this summer with partnerships with Costa and McDonald's. Now that is a serious achievement, a thousand rapid chargers and most of their chargers are above 100 kilowatts. So that is a fantastic thing for EV drivers. More charger news in that the UK automotive industry has urged the government to set binding targets for installing EV charging points to give motorists the confidence to switch to battery models. Obviously, very clearly, we need more public charges out there, especially for the people who can't charge at home. British Volt have gained a new investment of £40 million from Glencore for a new EV battery site. More great news. Gridserve news. Gridserve have opened Wales' first high-powered EV charging hub on the M4 near Swansea. There's really not a lot of EV charging in Wales, so it's good to see some high-powered charging. So that is the news, and that is it for another week. So thank you for listening. If you're still there, please do share and subscribe if you find it useful. Please look us up on LinkedIn where you can read more about us and you can contact me if you've got any questions. If you do have any questions, I will answer them on the podcast. If you want to submit one, look me up on LinkedIn and submit through there. Thank you very much. 